You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dan Basta is the director of the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries, part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Ocean Service. He leads the federal mission whose program is to protect and conserve the ecological and marine resources contained in the sanctuary system. Thank you for speaking with me, Dan. Well, it's great to be here, actually. Dan, tell us about the marine sanctuaries. When, when did we start doing this? Why? Well, it, it could get complicated, but I'll try to keep it simple. Uh, the when is uh, 1972, but the creation of the National Marine Sanctuary Act was the outgrowth of a decade or more of continuing concern by the American public about environment. It was the 60s. It was Silent Spring. It was Love Canal. It was a foreboding sense of Americans that something was wrong, that we were poisoning ourselves. It was high mortality morbidity from air pollution in American cities. And there was this sort of fear that we were on a bad path. And that led to a decade, 1970s, of the most unprecedented attention to environmental and natural resource concerns ever in the history of humanity. And that decade of the 70s created the fundamental uh, legislation, if you will, that uh, began to address these problems. So it was the Clean Water Act, it was the Clean Air Act, it was the National Marine Sanctuary Act, it was the Coastal Zone Management Act, it was RECRA, it was FIFRA. It was a decade of incredible attention uh, to these problems of humanity that had never had that attention before. The National Marine Sanctuary Act grew out of that. Talk about once this, you know, you have legislation, which is a bunch of words on a piece of paper, which few people, I think, even the people who write them and sign them uh, can understand. Talk about transforming that into an agency that is literally preserving our waterways, our coasts, and keeping our water drinkable. I mean, it's not inconceivable that we could all have to drink some kind of uh, filtered, artificial, who knows, water, were it not for the kind of work that you guys were doing. Well, I think uh, the uh, laws, statutes, regulations are, as you said, they're words on paper. They have little or no meaning unless a culture and a society embraces their intent. Now, the reality is that there's a great deal of interpretation of what they mean. Uh, And depending upon whom or what sort of group of professionals or individuals are in leadership positions, these things may be interpreted in very different ways. And we know that. It's also very much more complicated by where our government operates. You know, there's the Congress that has its own independent view, and it could prevent you from implementing your interpretation of something by simply not funding it. 
there is the executive branch that may also have a different interpretation of what is the uh, policy du jour in any of these matters. So all of these things of trans translating, transferring uh, legislation or regulation or these words of intent into reality is a work in progress. And to be clear, it's only as successful as it was yesterday. So, <laughs> that's a fact. So it is about this constant, and I, I tend to use military metaphors maybe too much to a lot of people's liking, but I think they fit it as a constant battle. And unless you recognize that you're in that, uh, you will drift away from the intent and the delivery of that intent to the American people. And, and we do see it all the time. Easy to do because it's difficult to keep on the course. It's difficult to overcome. It's difficult to interpret these things in an expansive manner. Because there are winners, there are losers in, perce in perception in anything you do. And it becomes part of the social, political arena. So it's hearts and minds, always. You started your career as an engineer, and I think How'd you know that? <laughs> I, I, I could tell by the way you talk. Oh. <laughs> and I think that's a really interesting discipline because it's some, there's a good deal of scientists. You're a scientist, but you're also a, a hands-on guy who, who makes things. And I think that informs a, a lot of your vision. Talk about how you went from being an engineer to becoming part of the environmental movement, becoming part of the you know, resources for the future, Environmental Studies Board. Uh, talk about that All kind right. of journey for you. Well, I think the instructive thing uh, in anybody's journey is to not take yourself too seriously. That a lot of things that uh, sort of channel you in various ways uh, have a lot of serendipity involved in that. Uh, it's about who you're exposed to. It's about allowing yourself to entertain different ideas. And I'm no different than anyone else in, in having had a serendipitous move from building airplanes to protecting oceans. Fact of the matter is, uh, I, when I was uh, in the aerospace business as an engineer, I had no idea I would ever be working in protecting oceans. I, admittedly, this was a long time ago, almost 40 years ago. But that was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, it was a sort of gradual sort of engagement of circumstance, deciding that at least I could decide I didn't want to spend my time building airplanes to drop bombs better. I wanted to spend my technical skills uh, addressing public problems. Uh, I could figure that much out. Wasn't quite sure uh, where all that would lead. But I think one thing that any, everybody needs to know is that serendipity does play an important part in all of this. However, you must be prepared when serendipity comes calling. It's not totally, it just was an accident. If you're not prepared, if you don't sort of have the, the uh, capacity, the uh, credential, the technical understanding and expertise, you're going to miss serendipity when it walks through the door for you. So it's being prepared uh, for it when it comes, and then understanding that it 
it's an important part of how you get there. Now, I, I think as you go further through your career, serendipity begins to play less of a role, actually, because you've arrived at different places and you're now more clear-minded about where it is you're taking things. And, and that is, uh, I think, where I was when I took over the National Marine Sanctuary System a decade ago. I was ready. Serendipity had had all of its workings, and when I was asked to do this, it was clear to me what that direction would be. But it took me a long time to understand that. Um, you know, the, old, the older you get, the more you, you think about things like words like wisdom, words like experience. And uh, in our rapid culture today, in which we all sort of swim fast in, there's a little bit of uh, sort of instant knowledge, experts on many things. You saw a lot of this in the Gulf spill, and you even heard some of it maybe in, at Blue here this week. And there's almost a dismissiveness of that you really have to study anything or know anything to be an expert. You know, it's, it's part of how the culture operates, and it allows itself uh, in almost a chaotic way uh, to bumble over its problems. That's something that's, that's an issue, I think. You know, and I, I think that's something that our universities have to deal better with. I think our communication industry, you, for example, and others have to sort of constantly be vigilant to that. We need the best and brightest and the most experienced to navigate these future waters that we have. We can't do it with spin and sound bites anymore. You know, um, that kind of experience that, that you, you bring to this, um, it, it's, it's really interesting because I, I think that we, as you say, the availability of instant knowledge makes us feel that we can always, we can all be instant experts. But it's the depth of experience that breeds in with you the sense of intuition that I think is key. Intuition is not something you can download or read a Wikipedia entry on. You, intuition comes from, from experience. And I'd like you to talk about the changing nature of your job and how you felt when you first, uh, when your, as you said, chance favors a prepared mind, when mm -hmm. chance gave your prepared mind the ability to step in and join Noah. At that time, Noah was, I think, a lot less understood or known, and the importance oh, yeah. of what it did. I mean, you can just see when you listen to the name, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, oh, wait, that's like three-quarters of the planet and all the air we breathe. Right. <laughs> that's pretty important. Uh, talk about oh, your yeah. journey there. Well, I'm, I'm not quite a plank owner, but I, I'm entering my 32nd year in NOAA, mm -hmm. believe it or not. Never thought I was going to be there more than five years, <clears throat> actually. And when I, <clears throat> when I, I came to NOAA, I... Uh, my, but I was working at a place called Resources for the Future, which was a think tank in Washington, D.C., and uh, a colleague of mine called me uh, about this new organization called NOAA. I had no idea what it was. Uh, and this colleague of mine uh, had written a paper on ocean management, and uh, whoever was at NOAA at the time said, we need this guy, and that's the future, ocean management. This is 32 years ago. 
By the way, that's a subject, again, today, as you know, in this administration, mm. ocean management. We know a lot about it. Sometimes I wonder if we bother to read what we know. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, he said to me, you know, we, you've been writing all this stuff. We've been working on all these concepts of integrated management and all the things. Again, new buzzwords again today. Uh, I think uh, we could apply some of these things and make a difference because this is a new area. You know, a lot of the resource management and environmental quality work in our country has all been on land and in watersheds and rivers and streams. And the ocean part of things had really gotten not much, frankly, technical attention. So there was a void there. Good thing. Why have to learn some of those bad planning lessons by repeating them? So I, I came to know it to, uh, to be involved in that and uh, worked a lot on oil and gas. Again, another issue today. NOAA used to be uh, a leader in evaluating the environmental impacts of oil and gas development around the country and in the Arctic. We had major staffs and major ability to influence those lease sales in those days. That's again being rediscussed probably as we speak. <laughs> Um, again, trying to figure out what should be done now. Uh, because I was technical, I always sort of uh, tended to move in a technical direction. You know, analytical systems, mathematical models, data. But it was always about integration. How do you integrate resource economics with biology, with computer science, and all these things to find optimum ways to deal with these problems. And uh, over, I don't know, a 15-year period, I built an organization called Strategic Environmental Assessment, where our role was looking at building these systems for the entire United States. And we did, whole, all ocean areas of the United States. They're manifested and available in lots of places in atlas form, uh, these large atlases that integrate mm -hmm. data and information. What a lot of people don't realize about that work in those days, they were really analytical systems. Mm. Uh, Pre-GIS, mm. but we wrote our own GISs. And in fact, interesting point, uh, probably one of the largest, mo most well-known is uh, ARC Info, or ESRI. And uh, when Jack Dangerman, the creator of ESRI, created that organization, he came to us. He had like eight employees. <laughs> and he wanted us to look at what they were doing and what they were doing was too simplistic for us. Couldn't, couldn't, work, couldn't solve our work. So we, were, we did our own. We wrote our own GISs uh, uh, because you needed them to do the spatial and temporal integration of things. And ultimately, over the, a decade or more, we worked closely with Esri and others, and we began to realize that we couldn't keep up with the innovation, and we needed to not write our own, but use more standard practice so we could deliver things to others, about others. But that whole experience was really about the nuts and bolts of that understanding. The one thing that uh, was a revealing thing that I think was part of your earlier point was about what, who are experts. Uh, one of the systems that we built, and we built this for the Arctic, was an extraordinarily powerful expert system in a GIS format that uh, homogenized so much that it made it easy to select things, build things, understand impacts. Uh, 
and we built an expert system. And then we brought together the 50 top Arctic scientists in the U.S. and Canada for three days and worked with them on that system that we delivered. And we began to understand that expert systems, which make things easy, are really for experts mm. because of what you said. You make it seem so easy, and there's so much integration that takes place and so much aggregation that unless you're a really expert in the subject, you don't understand truly what has been washed over, what has been sort of placed where, what is the inferences that you can draw from that. Because it's monkey see, monkey do. Click and drag. Look, there's the answer, got it. But there's so much behind these things that you homogenize, so much detail, that unless you really understand how the systems and how they work and how the data works, you're just playing with numbers. And we, dis we discovered we built something that was very dangerous. Mm. And we stopped building them in the late 80s. Uh, and that led me to think about this question that, that we talked about earlier about the ease at which you allow individuals to address complex problems sort of works counter to how you have to understand to address those problems. That's just a lesson that I think is still very valid uh, today. Uh, I only came to, I worked in the National Marine Sanctuary System helping them do things before I uh, became its director. And uh, one of those things we did was the Florida Keys management planning process. It's about a four-year process, and uh, me and my staff actually uh, designed and did that. And that was a, cru that was a crucial thing for, for forming, in my mind, where the public fits. Uh, I think most people, if they go back and look at that, they'll see that that work in the early 90s is still the best work available in the world on an integrated management planning system for a large ocean place. Florida Keys, a complete ecosystem. We made it complete knowing full well you couldn't implement all that because we had to set the bar. Where should you be going in these things? And uh, what the big lesson that I learned, I learned, I learned two things there of great value. Uh, first is that you have to have clarity and methods to codify local knowledge in systematic ways to use for your planning and decision. That it's okay not to have perfect data everywhere. It's okay to have uncertain information as long as everyone understands it and can live with interpreting its, its inferences. And local knowledge was key to that because there wasn't a lot of data. So it was working with local fishermen and local experts and codifying and building maps of what they knew. That w and how that worked in the public process was extraordinarily valuable because when they did that, they owned it. They took responsibility for how it's used and hence could understand and support the management conclusions of that. That was, that was one thing. The second thing was the use of advisory councils and public will which I could argue is why we're sitting here today at a film festival, arguably the largest on earth, because it's about public will. And the, and the lesson was with the advisory council. This was an integrated process in the Keys with the other federal agencies, the state agencies, 
local agencies in the municipality. Wow. Everybody's got an agenda. Nobody wants a sort of compromise. Uh, extraordinarily difficult process. Well, how did you break that process? Well, it turned out that we were able to break that process because the advisory council, 20-odd individuals selected throughout the Keys, in that case, representing different constituent groups, you know, fishermen, educators, tourist development board, uh, things like that. They became an integral part of the process and owned it. And when they, representing the public, uh, opined, it's hard for all of those agencies to stand against it. Mm -hmm. All agencies want to be thought of as valued by the public and get a check in the box of public support. Helpful. Very, very useful. So we, I thought that we, were, that we were able to negotiate and find the common ground in an extraordinarily difficult and, and controversial place in crisis because of public will, as articulated in a systematic manner uh, with this advisory body. And it's because of that that when I took over the program um, some years later, I created an advisory council at every site. Uh, when I took over the program, there were three. Now there are 14 because that citizen public will vector is the vector for change. And I submit to you that's kind of why we're sitting here in Monterey at this great festival. It's about how do you use all the means possible to motivate uh, the public, educate and motivate public will, just as public will at the beginning of our conversation led to the greatest decade of change in thinking and action on environment in the 70s. It's public will. That was a big lesson for me. You know, it strikes me that your job is so remarkably difficult because you're operating in two, you are the bridge between two alien realms. There are the realms, <laughs> <laughs> there, there is the cyberspace, I guess, almost vision of the regulations, the science, the knowledge, essentially the gathered words, the, re the, the, the laws, the things that are written down, codified, studies, um, data, that's over here. Then over here are the people living in the, your sanctuaries. And your job is to bridge those two and to use each of those two realms to inform and inspire the other to create a, a place that where we can get more data and where the people who are giving you the data are happier, more prosperous, and just basically safer. Well, you know, I don't think you're too far off that, really. I like to think that it's not just in sanctuaries, that sanctuaries, excuse me, as pla places sort of are those demonstrable things that make complex and unfathomable problems tractable. You know, when you think about the problems confronting the ocean around us, and everybody's a little bit cognizant of that because of the Gulf spill, not the first large spill, by the way, as we know, 
the ocean is such a large, vacuous place, it's hard to give its sort of granular meaning for people about actions and about consequences and about what it means to me. We're far more better attuned to understanding places because we live in places. Places give it, give it reality. Places are where you communicate larger and bigger ideas that are beyond those places. And special places have a, quote, special ability to do that. In a sense, when your uh, sanctuaries act as virtual neighborhoods, that we all live in a neighborhood, we understand what happens in our neighborhood. When you create these sanctuaries, they become an us about them. They become neighborhoods that we can inhabit and then that give us a lever towards the larger. Exactly correct. You got, you hit the ball on the head. That's, that's the game because, you know, the world right now is a very uncertain place for most humans who are informed. <laughs> there is this sense of uh, confusion and foreboding about the future. And you really can only address that a neighborhood at a time. We, we, we have to understand that it is motivating sort of at that place level uh, in a comprehensive manner where the solutions to this lie. It doesn't lie, lie in the grand scheme alone. It, it relies at that place-based community level. And, and we think that uh, for the ocean and coastal part of that challenge to us all, special places have a special role to play. And they focus you, they educate you, they compare and contrast you, and they empower you. But you got to use them to that purpose. So for us, and for what I think are the most hard, hardest working people in government are in the National Sanctuary System. Now I'm sure there are people who work as hard, but I can assure you there are no people who work harder, are more committed and more passionate to what they do than the people in the National Marine Sanctuary System and their partners. You, we, here in Monterey, uh, the aquarium, for example, uh, Embari, the institutions around the Bay, similar ethics, similar value of, of commitment. I think the other night I used the term, uh, I don't know if you were there, at the opening, but I used the term community of the committed. That is the essence, community of the committed. So those places have this ability to, to do that if you choose to use them. I mean, if you think that you will solve these problems or make any headrow uh, on them by just drawing lines on a map and putting fences around things, think again. It's how you use these special places as a means to an end. It's really about the bigger issue. Now, you know, there are two things that, that come out of that. One is that you have a staff that must be have a huge uh, collection of different talents, much like yourself. I think that people that you yourself are in a sense a microcosm of the kind of uh, talents that your staff requires to work to understand the most abstract data, to be able to wrap your brain around it on a scientific engineering level. On the other hand, to get out there and build things on, on an actual, you know, 
here's a beach, how many trash cans do we put in on it, and how often do we collect the trash? Um, I think in the, in the world today, the, the, the jack-of-all-trades professional is the, is the most valued professional. We need people who know enough about a lot of subjects. Now, let's take education, for example, which we haven't spoken of. Education is a main part of what we do, and education is one of those key pillars that is helping to create the solution for tomorrow. So our education programs, in fact, uh, we do great education programs in and around sanctuary communities, but we project these far beyond them. We're really about, again, using our educational programming as a means to an end. You know, I, I say this all the time, our job is to fundamentally influence in their behavior their, and their actions, and hence outcomes, 303 million Americans. That's got to be your focus. If your focus <laughs> is just inside your little box, all the little boxes are not adding up. Mm. You got to recognize that as a national entity, you know, with the net social welfare of the United States as your objective, you got to look at it in that way. Now, one of the things that um, interests me too is that when we talk about marine sanctuaries, these places are not all the same. In fact, they're wildly and vastly different. All you have to do is think about the difference between the Everglades and the Monterey Bay. They're, they have, in, other than water, almost nothing in common. So talk mm -hmm. about how right. these different environments create both a challenge for you, but also how solutions from one can sometimes might, might actually work elsewhere in an entirely unexpected manner. Well, that happens all the time, actually, and you have to create mechanisms to allow that to happen or even to be seen, because there's that old saying, not invented here, not invented. That's real. <laughs> and by the way, that's particularly real in California. Uh, cookie cutters are not the answer to tomorrow's problems. Places are unique and special in and of themselves, and therefore they have different uh, requirements, different problems to solve, and the ecosystems in and of themselves uh, are extraordinarily varied. But there are certain central principles and tenets that all must sort of march towards. The big one, uh, and you know, you say the word sanctuary. Sanctuary is a very difficult word. It means so much to so many. It has a powerful emotional component. But that is its key. The key is this powerful emotional and to say protected area, but to say sanctuary conveys a very different thing everywhere. And some people say that that's a misnomer and that's a problem for us and that it raises expectations beyond what these management structures that we have actually do. But I would submit to you this. It's a challenge. We, these management plans and these processes and these outcomes and what we do, we design and breathe life into them with communities. We are the most community-based resource management program in the United States, if not the world. It's tough. It's tough here in Monterey as well. And it's always that difficult cauldron of public participation. People with passions about things, people uninformed but passionate, <laughs> people who have axes to grind. But you know, 
Those are the people you want in the process. Because I could tell you that my experience is that if you trust to that, Americans have a way of always doing the right thing. You just got to let them do it. You got to be with it, not let it divert you. And it takes a while. There's a, for some reason, there's a number like a decade that seems to seem to resonate with the coming together of these difficult communities. But if you trust in American citizens and you, you nurture them, you help inform them, and you bring them into the process, they will eventually always go down the right road. Now, we like to use the word uh, and challenge people in that a sanctuary is what you make it. It's what you make it. It's what we started with the top of this conversation. It is not about the regulations. It is not about the statute. It's about what you make it. It's what you choose to be your commitment and what the vision is of what you will make it. Now, I often use the, the example of uh, a person who's walking down the street, and on the other side of the street, they see uh, someone getting mugged. Well, they have a choice to make. Do, how far do I go to sort of assisting the person, or do I assist them at all? Because I'm paying for police departments and protection, not my job. So the question is, what will you do, and what will you make it? And that's a, a challenge that we give to our communities. What will you do in a sanctuary is what you make it. I've gotten some criticism of some uh, of another sanctuary uh, regarding regulations and uh, allowing certain things to occur. And the critics of that are the individuals who have not committed to helping resolve it. The fact that you can't resolve it is because they will not provide you the support to do it. So the question to them is, what will you do? The public has to realize that it's in their hands and that it requires sort of an attentive, dedicated public to turn these things around. The government's not going to be able to do it just like that I pay for police protection is not going to protect you. You are most protected when all citizens own protecting each other. Same in environment, same in natural resources. Talk about um, the creation of a marine sanctuary. Uh, how does it go about and how much part of a part do you play? Uh, are there any new parts of our coastline that are in a process of perhaps being named a marine sanctuary? I mean, give us an insight into right. how these are created. Uh, well, there's a, a lot of parts of that, uh, that question. Um, a sanctuary can be created in a, in a number of ways. The Congress can simply do it wake up one morning and say, we want to make a sanctuary, there it is. And in fact, that is how the Florida Keys was designated, as we say. That was a congressionally designated sanctuary with no pre-scoping or public process. They just did it. The normal way in which a sanctuary is created is through a public process that has scoping meetings, has a draft environmental impact statement, a management plan, follows NEPA, and then gets proposed to the Congress for the Congress to designate. 
The rub of late, there are two rubs of late that I think uh, are worthy to mention. The first is that it's a cumbersome process. And even when you have a green light to run such a process, it could take you a decade. That's too slow. In that time, irreversible damage could Well, and happen. it's hard for, for, for people to keep their enthusiasm. Their, course, their enthusiasm. <laughs> especially in a world that wants instant gratification. You know, most would like to take the green pill and wake up tomorrow, and it's done. It's green. I'm green now. <laughs> yeah. So it's a very difficult uh, thing that can, can often take a long time, particularly if, if it's this issue of uh, fratricidal problems. And there's always a great sort of, uh, wherever you are, there's a fear of the federal government, and people fan that. It creates memberships for organizations. It's a very popular thing to do, easy to do. Especially today. Yeah, it's been hugely so. So that sort of makes this a very slow process, and advocates want quick results. That is a problem for us. So we, in our, in our reauthorization of the National Marine Sanctuary Act, which has not been reauthorized, uh, our, our, our draft of that is looks to streamline that process so it can go more quickly. There are other ways that that could happen as well, and that is if the president decides he wants to begin a sanctuary process. He can begin that by executive order, and that is what led to the Papahanao Mokuakea National Marine Monument in the Pacific Northwest. That was a Clinton executive order which began that process. And he can do, and the president can do that and make it quicker mm. if he so decides. Uh, you, right now, there are many places around our coasts that are advocating for expanding existing sanctuaries and creating new ones. Uh, from the Great Lakes to the West Coast. The Great Lakes aren't a marine sanctuary? We only have one in the Great Lakes mm. in Alpena, Michigan. Uh, there are proposals by Michigan and by Wisconsin for others. Along the East Coast, there are a series of proposals. There is also proposals in Puerto Rico and in the Pacific. And the fact of the matter is there is a groundswell of interest and desire around the country. But the problem is how do you do that? There are other interests that see that as a threat. Mm. Again, that's that give and take. And we don't have an authority right now where we can automatically take them all on. Uh, but we hope in the next year to have some ability to do that, to begin processes. I'll tell you one thing. Uh, this is worries me the most, being, I guess, a career bureaucrat, if you will. Americans are losing confidence in government. That's not news to anybody. But they're losing confidence because we are not listening to them. I mean, it, is, it, it, it really sort of hurts me, you know, as a believer in the American system when we can't deliver the goods. When for reasons obscure and of strange origin, we are not able to deliver the goods to the American public when it articulates its need. And that bothers me. The streamlining that we have to do 
in what we do, I think, is, is critical to that. We will not be able to deliver the expectations of the American public unless we streamline some of these things. It's, it's a hard thing. Talk about uh, Monterey and, and how events like this Blue Ocean Film Festival can um, promote awareness and help you in your job. And, and I also just how your feelings about Monterey itself. This well, is a beautiful okay. place. It's easy, easy th about that. Uh, Monterey is an extraordinary place. I first began working out here in the '94, uh, maybe in helping the then the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary create its its water quality programming with agriculture and uh, urban areas. Uh, in fact, we had our first big meeting right next door at the convention center. I think it was 94. Well, there's a, there's a coming together that Monterey provides. And uh, the Blue Ocean Film Festival, uh, this is its second year. Uh, it began in Savannah, that was last year, and it piggybacked onto a local film festival that we would do every year. We have a sanctuary off of Georgia, Gray's Reef, mm. uh, and our headquarters are in Savannah. And it was a very nice film festival, actually very local. And uh, Blue became, we brought Blue to there with the Blue organizers, and we were able to demonstrate that you could have an ocean film festival of worth that was not local. But if you want to really create an ocean film festival that is going to be motivating to the world, you have to have it at a place that has certain characteristics for that. It is an ocean film festival. Our goals and the goals of the organizers for Blue are to create an environment in which filmmakers who reach more people than any bureaucrat reaches in the programming that they do can be further motivated to the task of creating public will, could be further motivated in innovative and different ways to think about that, can be further motivated to form networks and partnerships that don't exist to arm them with things to go and do what they do, but to do them in a way that begins to add up. That's what Blue is about. Doing it in Monterey maximizes your ability to do that because of several things. First, the world-class aquarium here at Monterey speaks volumes. And the aquarium support of Blue validates and legitimizes it to an entire world that understands oceans and visits aquariums. 170 million Americans a year walk through the doors of aquariums, actually. It's quite a number. I love going to the aquarium. I have since I was a kid. It was my favorite place to go. Experiential learning is the way we learn best. Secondly, uh, it is one of the most sort of iconic places of raw primary productivity and ocean energy known. It can compete anywhere in the world with that. The Monterey Canyon makes it this fabulously rich place of great marine mammals, of extraordinary primary productivity, of world star fishing assets. It has a romance to it that also lingers, it's, and it's a romance of the sea. 
it's, it's not only John Steinbeck, but it's the romance of the fisheries that were here, those ocean communities, the Italians, the Sicilians, uh, and others. Uh, and then it has, it's kind of a centroid for some of the most well-respected research institutions in oceans today. I think there are 30 higher-level research institutions around Monterey Bay from Santa Cruz all the way uh, south of San Simeon. It has all the, all the things that allow that to be a point from which you can be a means to an end. Again, it's that means to an end. And Monterey was just the first idea that came to mind among a number of us when Savannah worked. Savannah's a great place, and we will continue to do programming in Savannah, but to reach the ocean world, the lens that uh, is that place that's a means to an end that can do that, Monterey. And hence, the festival this year, the Blue Ocean Film Festival, is, I think, and someone said I might be, you know, exaggerating, but there's only one other film festival that might be able to sort of compete, and it's in France, and it's not only oceans, but this festival is probably the largest collection of ocean filmmakers and practitioners in the world ever, right here in Monterey. You know, we had the theater filled on the opening, every seat, standing room only. Very, very powerful. And they, these great filmmakers feed off their energies. They are creating things that, that connect to policy. They speak in other forums. They are a power. And we, we have to help that power make a difference. Uh, Monterey is now the home of the Blue Ocean Film Festival. I don't know if you knew that or not. No, that's great news. I'm and, glad to uh, hear it's, it. It's a festival that uh, the organizers, uh, who now moved here. Oh, who can blame them? <laughs> uh, and uh, every other year there will be the, Mon the Monterey Bay Blue Ocean Film Festival. Uh, I tell you, the, uh, the organizers and the people, the troops, the volunteers, uh, my folks who have made this happen, Wow, unbelievable, over-the-top uh, uh, commitment and effort. And I think Monterey is, 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 should be proud of why it's here. Monterey has adopted it as one knew it would, uh, but it's got to tilt their hats to these folks who have given up so much uh, to breathe life into its beginning this year. I can't wait to see it two years from now. It's a big deal. You know, just one final comment on that. Uh, we think, of course, you know, by what I've said, how critical that is to, to providing a nexus for a solution in the world today. I'm not sure that that's understood really in government circles. I don't, I, I don't think in the way our, we're currently operating that there is a real direct appreciation for how you connect with that body of, our world to change. Everybody likes good films to go to one, great, I love it. But how do you, how do you get that to be this, this vector that is operating there through its social media, through its events, through its films, touching everybody repeatedly and connecting them? I think you do it through other means like the 
Blue Ocean Film Festival. And that's why you are running the National Marine Sanctuaries Program, because you are an engineer not just of things, but also of human emotions. And I think that's critical in keeping our sanctuary safe, keeping our oceans safe, and keeping the citizens of the United States informed as to the scope and importance of what happens in a place that we know so little of, yet it occupies most of the earth. Yeah, we know a lot about it. We always say we know so little about it because that drives other people's agendas, money for research. <laughs> it it's also creates sort of a need. Uh, we know enough about it with respect to how humans need to adopt different behaviors, et cetera. We know enough about that. It's a dodge to say we don't. We do know enough about that. And there's evidence all around you as to answering that question. You know, I, I, I sometimes wonder, how the heck did this happen to me? And, and why did this sort of go in this direction? And, I, and for listeners out there, I think there's one thing that uh, might be part of of why you find yourself creating different ideas, exploring things you never thought you would explore. And I think it's this. If you are results-oriented, it's results that count, and you are failing to produce results, and more of the same does not produce results, it forces you to think out of the box. It forces you to think in areas you never thought of before, because failure is not an option. So it's that results-oriented mentality that allows you to stray out of the box into other areas. That's an important trait for us, I think, to, to recognize that drives innovation. You gotta, at least it did for me. Um, so I'm pretty available in, in, in trying to find ways. It's getting there that counts, and we have a huge huge issue, huge problems confronting us for the next number of decades, if not longer. So it's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I've been speaking with Dan Bosta. He's the director of the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries and part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Thank you for joining me, Dan. Oh, pleasure, and I, and I think what you do is critically important. I think your international reach is important. And uh, we need more people conducting these kinds of forums. And with local people, not with people like me, but with people that citizens get because they're, they're them. So thank you for what you do. Thank you, Dan. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>